To our church family near and far, please join me as you are able and rise for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. Two, other all, two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Angela, thank you for reading our lesson this morning. And my goodness, thanks to our musicians, uh, to this ensemble and the choir on screen. Was that amazing? Just amazing. And thanks to our production team and all who have helped to make this possible. Uh, I said at 8.30 this morning that it's, it's really incredibly interesting to me how in the midst of all of the challenges that we're seeing, that the witness of the church continues to go viral in ways that just give us heart and hope. And thank you so much, James, Patsy, Greg, all of our musicians, and Allison and Adam for leading us uh, this morning. If you've been with us uh, since the first part of August, you know that we're near the end of our series, that we started about the time that school started. We're in our ninth week today in this series on the prayer life of Jesus that we've been referring to by the title, Teach Us to Pray. And we've been looking closer at Jesus according to Luke's gospel in specific because really the keynote of Luke's gospel has to do with the prayer life of Jesus. It is the thread that runs through his life, death, and resurrection. And next week, however, for the final week, we're going to depart from Luke's gospel because I want to finish the series with a message on the 17th chapter of the gospel of John, which features Jesus's prayer for the unity of the church. So we're going to finish that next week. But this morning, I want us to think for just a few minutes together about this prayer that Angela read that happened on a good Friday afternoon about three o'clock at a place called Golgotha. It's interesting to me that the combined gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all of those gospels combined include seven different last words from Jesus. There's one in Matthew and Mark, there's three last words according to the gospel of John, but in Luke, there are also three last words that Jesus shares from the cross. And what distinguishes Dr. Luke's account from all the others is that all three of these last words are prayerful words. And that's so Luke. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not surprising to me to find Jesus praying 
in this predicament. I mean, who wouldn't have prayed? Even non-believers will cry out in a crisis. Even agnostics will cry out in a crunch when life is vulnerable or at risk. And as they say, and I think it's true, there are no atheists in foxholes. In fact, it's instinctive. Like a hungry infant that's crying out, reaching out for its mother, so we who are offspring of God just yearn and long for assurance. It's instinctive, it's innate. The psalmist says it like this in chapter 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for God. In the life and times of Jesus, this instinct for him became intentional. In fact, it became habitual. His whole life was in essence a dialogue with the Father. And so it's no surprise to find Jesus here at the last praying to God. It's been my privilege in almost 38 years of ministry to walk with a number of people in their final days and hours. It's a distinct privilege to be able to do that. And what I've noticed in those years is that we have a tendency, it's not always the case, but we have a tendency to face our death much like we face our lives. In other words, if we live with a calloused heart, if we live with bitter souls and resentment and regret always over what we've missed, we tend to face our final days in the same way. And on the other hand, if we live with expectation, if, if we live with a sense of joy and hope and peace and grace, then we face our end in a similar way. Although, let me say, to be sure, death whether, it's eight, whether it happens at eight or 98, death is always tragic. It is always grievous. And I remember something I, th I think you probably never thought you would hear Woody Allen quoted from the pulpit, but I remember something Woody Allen said, it's not death that worries me, it's dying. The process of leaving. And so it's no surprise that Jesus is praying. I'll tell you what is surprising. It's remarkable to me the particular prayer that Jesus is praying in this scene. I mean, you would expect you would be praying for yourself at a moment like that, right? You would expect you'd be praying for your family, for your friends, for your followers. But Jesus is actually praying for his perpetrators. Jesus is petitioning the Father for the very ones who strung him up. And check out the content of the prayer. This is what he says. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is dying just like he lived. Now, I, for one, am glad to find one teacher, one preacher, one rabbi who actually practices what he preaches and you see this throughout his ministry. In fact, earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter six, in the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's equivalent of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, though it is a little briefer, Jesus says something like this. I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. 
And he didn't just say it, he lived it. Tim McGraw, recording artist, had a hit a few years ago. We love this song. I think Tim Nichols wrote it, Live Like You Were Dying. I'd love for somebody to write a song called Die Like You're Living. And Jesus did. In his model prayer that we'll say in a few minutes before we come to the table, he taught his disciples to pray like this, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. He's dying just like he lived. One of my favorite disciples is Simon Peter because he's so much like us, impetuous, impulsive. And in chapter 17 of Luke, Peter comes to Jesus with a fill-in-the-blank question on forgiveness. In other words, he doesn't want to talk about it. He just wants a bottom-line answer. And he comes to Jesus with this question. You remember this? How many times, Lord, must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And just like Peter always does, he answers his own question seven times, thinking that he's being somewhat generous. And Jesus says, uh, no. Not, not seven times, 70 times seven. And Peter's thinking, I'm sorry I ask. I don't want to know that. What Jesus really meant by that was this, stop counting. Who's keeping score? Can you imagine a parent saying to a teenager who's 16, oh, that's 491, you're out. It was Paul himself who said, love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. But I do. We do sometimes. A friend of mine sent me last week an article by a man named James Clear who's written a book called Atomic Habits. And he said in the article words that I will never forget. This is what he said. Listen to this. Spend as little time as possible talking about how other people are wrong. I want to say it again. Spend as little time as possible talking about how other people are wrong. The corollary is this. Maybe our time is better spent championing something good than just tearing everything down this bad. Reminded me of Anne Lamott, who once said it like this, forgiveness means that it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. More important than who started it, who will stop it? Father, forgive them. He's dying like he lived. And by the way, who is them? Forgive who? Soldiers? Yeah. The Romans? The state? Yes. The Sanhedrin? The religious council? Yes. The disciples? Of course. The crowds? Yes. All who opposed him or were complicit towards him, forgive them. Now, think of what Jesus could have said. I mean, I tell you what I would have said. I would have said, Father, forget them. 
But he said, Father, forgive them. The man is dying just like he lived. And then he adds this line that I've always, I've always wondered about. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What's he mean? They don't realize the scope of what's happening. They don't realize the scape of what's happening, the scale. What is Jesus saying? He's not really excusing their sin. He's explaining it. It sounds like what Jesus is saying is the problem is with our ignorance. We don't know. Now, it's interesting, Webster defines that word ignorant as a lack of information and a lack of knowledge, and certainly that can be true. But this crowd, the religious crowd and the Romans had lots of knowledge, and they believed, based on what they knew, that they were keeping the peace through Golgotha. They were rectifying blasphemy, treason. They were actually delivering punitive justice but they didn't know that they were actually slaying a prophet. We never know until a few years pass, do we? What they didn't know was that they were actually crucifying the Messiah. Now, the religious elders thought, based on what they knew, that self-deliverance was a sign of messiahship. But they didn't know. In spite of their own scripture, they didn't know. Listen to Isaiah 53. It was written seven centuries before Jesus. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And then listen. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession. He prayed for the transgressors. Somebody in the crowd missed that day in synagogue school when they taught on Isaiah 53. They believed that the proof in the pudding for spiritual power was coming down from the cross. Self-deliverance, not self-sacrifice. And yet God's ways, they're not our ways. God's thoughts they're not my thoughts. Salvation is not about political muscle. It's about suffering love. It's not just about judgment. It's about mercy. But they didn't know. Our own Phil Jameson. Do you know Dr. Jameson, who's a part of our church? He's in the Crossroads Sunday School class. He is the director for the Tennessee Methodist Foundation and a dear friend, a scholar. He's written a book called The Face of Forgiveness. I want to quote just a piece of that book that speaks to me. It says, Dr. Jameson, Jesus does come in judgment, but he allows the judgment to fall on himself. And thus all those who look into the dying face of the Savior may see the full revelation of God, the one who knows humanity best and loves us most. But they didn't see it. 
and they didn't look. And sometimes we don't either. I've heard a phrase all my life that I disagree with. Ignorance is bliss. You ever heard that? What you don't know won't hurt you. That's a lie. What you don't know will cost you. What you don't know can kill you and others too. And so I've discovered that sometimes it's not a lack of knowing. Sometimes I just don't want to know. I went home last week, got home for dinner. Sherry said, uh, the wedding director called. We, ha we have a wedding in four weeks. She said, the wedding director called. I said, what did she say? Sherry said, you don't want to know. I said, thank you, and we forgot all about it. Now, I know exactly what she was going to say. She was going to say, the wedding director called. There's been a little budget issue. Cha-ching. I don't want to know. Sometimes that's the problem in larger aspects of our life. It's not that we don't know. It's a willful ignorance. I don't want to know because if I know, I got to do. And I don't want to do. Suffering love is not in my playbook instinctively. Oh, it's in the Bible. <laughs> but it's not in my playbook, it's too hard. But when you read the gospel, it's not really an option, is it? I don't know how I missed it, but I somehow missed it in the exegesis class in New Testament, that little parenthetical line that says, whoever comes after me must deny himself and pick up a cross. It comes with the frock, but I don't see it sometimes. I don't want to see it. Peter didn't want to. And yet later we know that he was crucified like his Lord, except upside down. Something happened to Peter, and he would write about it in his first letter, the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to this. It is a credit to you if being aware of God, knowing God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. That's a credit. If you endure when you're mistreated for doing something wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer because of it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow, we should follow in his steps. If we know that, why don't we do it? I think it was Karl Popper who said, true ignorance is not the absence of knowledge, it's the refusal to acquire it. I love what Ben Franklin said. He said, we're all ignorant, but one has to work to remain stupid. Amen. I had a funeral yesterday for Sean Stewart. What a man age 49, died of cancer. He died much like he lived, with courage and hope and love. I'll tell you about Sean, he was a psychologist and a good one. He and his wife, Lisa, who is a psychoanalyst, 
had their practice together, and he took on the tough cases. Lisa said my office across the hall from his was very pleasant with quiet music and pillows all arranged, you know, matching furniture, but his across the hallway, constant thumping and bumping and yelling going on. He took on the tough cases. He took on kids who were on the spectrum, autism. He became an expert in that, even teaching in universities across the Northeast. He saw their suffering, and he had to do. He took it on his shoulders. His personal mission was this. Listen to this. His personal mission statement was this. I want to eliminate the stigma of the word disorder and help create a world that accepts difference. But he didn't just teach that. They took kids into their own home who didn't share their last name. He died like he lived. He saw and he knew and he acted. There were a few people at Golgotha that day who actually got it, but it wasn't the clergy. (laughs) The religious authorities were too busy pontificating and theologizing. It wasn't the political leaders. They were too busy legislating. But there were a few people who got it. There was a handful of women who were beating their breasts. There was a dying thief. There was a Roman soldier who said, surely this is the Son of God. That is so Luke. The ones who actually got it were on the spectrum. They were in the margins. They were on the edge. And I can't help but think of another prayer that Jesus prayed. Guess what? That's also in Luke, Luke 10. It was when the missionaries the disciples that he had sent to heal and to cleanse and to preach, they came back and they had a big prayer meeting. And Jesus got so excited about what they said that the Lord had been doing, he just broke out into a spontaneous prayer. It's in Luke 10, this is what it says. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the high and mighty and you have revealed them to the humble and lowly to little ones. I've come to the conclusion that sometimes in order to see the scope of grace, you have to get low and you have to look into his face. Forgive them. They don't know. Forgive me, I don't know. Forgive us, we don't know. Jesus is not excusing sin, he's explaining it. But when you look into his face, when you see the suffering savior, you know who he is. And then you know who you are. And you know what you need to do. And by God's grace, 
we can actually rise to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.